Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by Heart to Heart Medical Supply. Heart to Heart is an American company offering FDA-registered respirator masks at the lowest prices. Heart to Heart offers free, same-day shipping, and by using the promo code HOLD20 at checkout, you can save 20% off your entire order. Visit hearttoheart.com. That's H-A-R-T, the number two, H-A-R-T, dot com. Hearttoheart.com. They're saving us from the homeless crisis, but they're not actually ending the crisis. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish. Gotta fight. Hold the line! Welcome back to Hold the Line with Mike Solon. I have in studio today somebody that I've uh, grown to admire because he's willing to tell it how it is in terms of Seattle's public safety situation how that public situation is amplified into the political spectrum of things. And he's ready to face the criticism that is launched to him, I think, more often than not, in an unreasonable way. It's because I think that they don't like what he has to say because I believe that he speaks on facts that impact everybody's public safety interests in this city. And he does not allow people to bully his voice. And to me, I find that, courageous. So without further ado, in studio here at the Spog HQ Broadcasting Studio, the one and only David Preston. Thanks, Mike. How you doing, bud? Good. I appreciate you being here. I know that you, uh, you've been in the game for a while in terms of talking about Seattle's political issues that impact public safety. You've been the target of smear campaigns and narratives as far as boxing you into a certain uh, view of people that really aren't read into the the straight up political side of things in terms of public safety. So, and I think that people find that maybe you're a threat and maybe that's why they do this to, to paint this negative picture and false picture about you so that they can control the narrative so you don't have a voice. Would you, would you find that an accurate assessment? I would. How, how better would you describe what you do? And first of all, you can just, we'll start why, um, what you think about, about this place and what you think about policing in general. We'll just have a good free-flowing conversation. Well, it's, it's interesting to actually be here in person because I've seen the building a lot on the news yeah. and, uh, it seemed like uh, it was a war zone for a while. And from the outside, it, it looks like it's a high-security building. There's nothing about spog on the, the front or no signage of any kind. So that's that's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, right now with the bright lights, I feel kind of like uh, it's an interrogation, but that's fine. <laughs> I'm here to be interrogated. <laughs> that's okay. We can, we can look at it that way. It's good. No, man. Um, you know, what I like about podcasts, because I think we get to authentic conversations. And you're yeah. going to ask me questions that you're going to put me on the spot on. Um, and I just want to know more about you and then what you think about the state of the city. And um, I think the mere fact of just having you on here is going to let them go crazy. And uh, which to me is, that's democracy. Yeah. 
right? And, and anybody who wants to stifle free speech and alternative viewpoints, you got to question why people want to silence alternative viewpoints. And then are we really living in a democratic society? Yeah, in a, in a very real sense, we're not living in a democratic society because uh, I've personally observed, I've, I've, I've been at events where uh, people's First Amendment rights were suppressed. So they, I've been at um, peaceful demonstrations in support of the police, for example, and we were surrounded by uh, a left-wing mob, yeah. and they were shouting us down, they were, they were threatening us, they were following us, and uh, so we effectively lost our free speech rights on that day. So, And I think you and I had some conversations about that day, because it was a build-off of the rally Spog put on at Seattle Hall August 9th. Yep, it was. So we had about 3,500 people that were supportive of the police at, a, at the time where you know, Antifa and Black Bloc um, were bent on destroying our city. And I think it was courageous of the people that support public safety and support the cops to show up at City Hall when they had about 50 to 100 Black Bloc across the street willing to assault and, uh, I guess, what would you say, uh, silence us. Yeah. When we had families in the crowd. So, and I've, I've mentioned this before. Um, to, to, to guest on, on, on behalf of the, of the podcast, but you wanted you to just expand on that because you were there that day. Yeah. Well, I was there for, um, I think I w- I've been there for all but one of the pro-police rallies that have happened in Seattle. The first one, as I recall, was uh, organized by a police spouse. And uh, I was uh, talking with her frequently about that, but it, um, I had a conflict on that day, so I couldn't make it. That was the very first one. It was small. Uh, it was at City Hall, mm-hmm. and they did get heckled, but they went through with it. And I think that may have gotten um, your attention. Oh, yeah. And so you decided to, to put on, uh, or actually there was another one in, in between. There's two of them. Two of them, okay. Um, but you were at the third one, and it was by far the largest. Yeah, and, and, and I credit you know our friends in radio and in local media that are fair imbalanced um that are, are moderate to a degree too to to getting the message out there and then I, I was obviously you know we started uh, our campaign to um stop the nonsense galactivism and the political movements of the council who wanted to defund us by 50 percent. Yeah. so we started the campaign stop and uh that's what kind of like birthed if you will that rally yeah well you had a, a great message but even if you had just stood there and said, rah, 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 that's something. That's, uh, that's an action in support of the police, yeah. and that's important. Um, your rally was at the sweet spot because you had uh, a lot of police protection there. You had a lot of attendees. Uh, you, you got the message out and got a, a whole bunch of people there, and so th- there was such an overwhelming force on our side that the Antifa people just stood across the street, played their little games, put on their charades. They were kind of amusing, but they had no effect on people's ability to speak their mind. So that was key to your success, is you had the numbers, you had police protection, and then you had a message. You were really on message with that, and so there was a lasting impression there. But the other rallies have um, struggled because they uh, didn't have the network that you have, 
um, and they were not organized by SPOG, so they were uh, much more lightly attended, and Antifa picked up on that, and the numbers were in favor of them when they showed up, so they were much more successful with their heckling. And uh, as you probably remember, the last rally at Green Lake, there were, it seemed like, more Antifa than uh there were of us. What 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 month was that? Was that was October? That, it was October, November. I was going to say it was that like late fall, early winter. And it was it was not at City Hall, and there was a police presence in the vicinity, but the the police did not. They uh, were apparently directed not to come anywhere close to us, and so that left no space between Antifa and us, and they charged us, and they they drove us out of there after half an hour, 45 minutes of us doing our rally. And so, you know, to me, that was that was a lesson. You need to have everything lined up. You need to make sure you're going to have uh, security there. You need to make sure you're going to have uh, a large enough attendance so that that has a, an effect on the opposition. Yeah, otherwise they don't try anything. Yeah, otherwise your, your free speech will get trampled on. Yeah. Right? We would never do that to them. Never. We, we would never shout them down. We might, we might show up at... Um, counter protest to antifa with a sign we never chase them out of their venue that's just wrong yeah it's my understanding most of those black block uh, protesters demonstrators and rioters they don't usually have signs for the political message it's more so they're bent on destruction yeah silence yeah bent on shouting other people down intimidating them yeah so uh you know for people that are just tuning in um describe Describe yourself, I guess, in a few minutes, who you are and why you do what you do. I am a homeowner in West Seattle. I've lived in Seattle for uh, 30 years, and I'm very attached to the city. I'm very uh, plugged into neighborhoods all over. I have got friends all over the city, uh, people from all walks of life I know. Uh, I love my city, and I remember what it was like when I first moved here. And I wanted to get back to, to that place where everybody feels free to participate in the civic life of their city and, and people feel responsible for doing that. Uh, and they, they care more about what's happening in Seattle and what's happening on the, the other side of the country. They care about holding public officials, including the police, accountable. Mm. and they But they do that not by... Uh, angry demonstrations or violence. They do that by showing up at City Hall, calmly speaking their piece, um, and having contact, regular and uh, frequent contact with their elected representatives. That's the Seattle I remember, where things ran pretty smoothly, and there were, were people in every neighborhood who cared enough about that neighborhood to sign up for any kind of committee that the, the city was hosting to design a new park or um, make some changes in the uh, stoplights, put in a traffic circle, whatever. You used to be able to get people to, to volunteer for those kinds of um, civic duties. Now it's much harder for them to do that. And COVID has contributed to that. COVID has, has made people kind of withdraw mm-hmm. politically uh, and socially. But that process was already well underway when COVID happened. When, when did you notice, I guess, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when did you notice where that civic participation 
started and I guess devolved? Well, I, I'd say that I first got involved in city pol- politics in a big way when I started writing my blog, which you can find at uh, homelessindustrialcomplex.com. And that blog came out of um, some volunteer experience that I did in my neighborhood. There was a very large homeless camp at the bottom of Highland Park Hill. Mm -hmm. And um, I volunteered for about a year helping homeless people in that camp. Like, what would you do to to volunteer to help them out? What would you do? Well, I I made connections with a handful of them and uh, asked them what they needed. And if there was something that I could help them out with, I would do that. I might uh, take them shopping, for example. Uh, I might um, deliver some food supplies to them. Uh, or I might. It might just be companionship, just letting them know that uh, somebody cared about them and somebody wanted them to get out of that homeless camp and into a, a permanent home. And what I discovered uh, after a few months of being there was that the management of that camp wasn't interested in in those things. They didn't have the same objectives that I had in terms of moving people out of homelessness into a permanent home. They wanted to have that camp there forever or have it uh, in some other place in the city permanently. And they didn't uh, feel any special obligation to any particular homeless person who was in that camp. And I, I learned that the hard way when a friend of mine who I knew before he became homeless lost his apartment, lost his job, and moved into that camp. And he shortly thereafter became very sick. He had uh, COPD, and there were campfires going in that uh, camp constantly. Yeah. And so he was breathing in the smoke in the, in the, in the damp winter air. He's getting really sick. And... One day, uh, a mutual friend of his and I showed up at the camp and and saw that he was near death. And so we wondered, why wasn't the camp management looking in on him and making sure that he got to the hospital because he was so sick? Who was was managing this camp at the time? The the camp was run by the Nicholsville group. Okay. And also the Cher and Nicholsville are part of the same group. And they uh, were running at that time one large camp, but they've, they've since split off, and, and now they run several camps. But I, I discovered that that camp really wasn't about moving people into housing. It was just about having a, a homeless camp there, more or less permanent, highly visible to the community, so they could push this message that uh, they needed more money to do what they were doing. So anyway... It, when it became clear to uh, my, f- my friend and I that our mutual friend was, was not going to make it unless he got out of that camp, we got him out of that camp. We took him to the hospital. And slowly he got better over a period of months. But it took a, a lot of um, time and money from his friends to, to get him into, that, into a better place. And he had a lot of advantages relative to the other folks in that camp. So when I think about my friend's experience and I think about the average person in one of these homeless camps around Seattle today, I realize that it would take even more effort to 
get them into a permanent home. So and be- that effort is just not there. So it became personal for you from the jump. Yeah. Where So you became your own philanthropist, if you will, trying to clean up yeah. your area that yeah. impacted your quality of life. And you're just seeing the, how the city is degrading a little with yes. this homeless crisis. Yes. And then more importantly, it even hits more personally because you had a personal friend yes. who became homeless, unfortunately. Right. And went to this homeless encampment run by a couple of entities. Mm-hmm. Were those entities receiving any kind of public money at Not the time? A, at, well, at that time, they were receiving money to run homeless shelters out of churches. Okay. But they were not being paid to run these homeless camps yeah. that were outdoors. Now they are. Now they're, the share organization runs um, a couple of the tiny house villages around Seattle. I call yeah. them shack villages. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but when I approached the management of the camp to ask them why, weren't, why they weren't doing more, that's when it became clear to me that they weren't about moving people into permanent homes. They just wanted to have them sit there. To what end? So they could convince the, the people of Seattle and the politicians that they needed money to, to run their operation. They were saving us from this homeless crisis. And they're still doing exactly the same thing today that they were doing then. They're saving us from the homeless crisis, but they're not actually ending the crisis. So, uh, it's, so it's more greed. Money-making? You know, continue uh, the... The apparatus, if you will, of giving people paychecks. Well, s- off the backs it's of homeless. Partly people? about that, there are organizations in Seattle that do get paid a lot of taxpayer money to uh, provide shelter, to provide uh, these shack villages for people. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, I think it was more about politics. It was just it was more about getting a beachhead with the city, and um, the name of this camp was Nicholsville, yeah. named for Mayor Greg Nichols, who took a kind of hard line with them and said, no, you can't move homeless people onto public property and just hang out there. And so in retaliation, they named their camp for him, and the name stuck, and that was a, a, a very powerful lesson in um, for politicians as to what position they needed to take with regard to these homeless advocacy organizations. Politicians looked at Greg Nichols and his experience, and they realized that it was in their interest to align themselves with these homeless advocates rather than opposing them in any way. And so from that point on, you saw a steady movement of the city council and the King County Council all the way up to the... um, now Constantine, to align themselves politically with these groups and to give them money. And then they get the political blessing from these groups. Okay, so ultimately it's for um, to stay in power. Yes. So that's how I, I got involved in writing about politics. I started uh, up my blog, homelessindustrialcomplex.com, and I... I did some research into the connections between the people running this camp and mm-hmm. City Hall. And I found out that the connections went pretty deep. The, the, the person in charge of this camp, Scott Morrow is his name, had a longstanding relationship with Lisa Herbold, going way back to when she was a council aide. 
He also had a relationship with Nick Licata, and there are photographs of this Morrow character at City Hall or a city office building meeting with city council members. That extended to Sally Bagshaw, who actually paid a visit with a couple other council members to this same camp that was in my neighborhood. They got this, the deluxe tour. They looked around and said, well, this is great. These folks are really helping the homeless. So the city needs to, to sponsor this organization. And that developed into official sponsorship. And so I, on my blog, I, I write about the problem of these homeless camps, these city-sanctioned homeless camps, which is that they don't get people out of homelessness. And they're not really meant to. They're, they're meant to um, consolidate political power for this group of homeless service providers and to generate income. And they're never going to run out of people to, to populate these homeless camps. Uh, some, some people will leave the camps on their own. Some people will, will find housing um, on their own. Uh, or occasionally they'll find housing with the help of a friend or maybe uh, some city employee. But into their place will come one or two more homeless people. Sometimes they're from Seattle, sometimes more often than not, actually, they're from outside of Seattle. And so these, these camps stay full, they keep growing, and they keep generating money for the people running them. And so I quickly deduced that this is not the solution to homelessness. You can't just throw money at it. Yeah. And you have to have accountability. You have to have accountability of the people running the camp. And you have to also have some accountability of the people living in the camp. You have to say to those folks, okay, you, you come in today, April 23rd. We have a policy that in a month from now, you're going to be here. You're going to have um, either uh, sought out some uh, medical help for your, your medical issues. You're going to get into some job training. You're, you're going to make some progress. And we're going to get you connected with social social workers and other services to help you do that. We'll be behind you all the way. But we expect you to participate in this. If you're not going to participate, if your plan is just to uh, blow out of this camp and into another one, then we, we don't want you here because you're, you're not helping us. You're not doing your part to help us solve homelessness. And that's, those were the things that I wrote about. And that was eight years ago, almost nine years ago, okay? And here we are, so much later, so, so many years Almost later. Almost a decade. Yeah. And things have, have only gotten worse. And the average Seattle uh, citizen doesn't really want to dig into the problem. Why? The level that I have. Why? Because it's hard. Because the, it seems overwhelming. They I, think, oh, so many homeless people, and they've got so many problems. What can I do yeah. to, to change the situation? Nothing. So I better just... Trust the politicians with the good hearts. They'll know what to do. I, I, I could see that point. And I said it that public safety obviously is devolving. But I don't think it's reached the level that impacts people like you just described. I think those kind of the, the people that aren't involved just yet. And I'll just kind of maybe one up it is my belief is because it hasn't impacted their own personal doorstep. And then once it does, then they get involved. Because I find that, you know, they're hands off. 
like you described, let the politicians handle that. That's that's the government's job. But to your point, here we are nine years later, a decade later, and it's only getting worse. And then so at some point, this public safety crisis will ultimately impact their doorstep, won't it? It will. And that's not being, you know, because I've heard people call me alarmist, right? That's a, that's a reality because it's human nature. So I, I just question people that aren't interested in solving this, and that's why I think you've, during that philanthropy, I would call it, you highlighting the issues as your own private citizen who, number one, got started because it impacted you personally, and you wanted to do something about it. Then you had a personal friend that you saw go through this issue. Yes. Where they almost died. Yeah. And, and you've taken a significant amount of heat over your work. Yeah. Why is that? Well, since I, I started the, the blog, I've branched out into other causes. And the way that happened was that uh, I was invited to, to start writing for a Facebook page called Safe Seattle. And for anybody who's not familiar with that, it's safeseattle.org on Facebook. How many, how many people that do, you, do, do you follow Safe Seattle? Over 17,000. It's a lot of people. Yeah. Are they mostly Seattleites or is it across the region? Mostly. Mostly uh, Seattleites. There, there are a lot of former Seattleites, people who have moved out for various reasons but still want to follow what's going on in the city. So I, I consider them Seattleites, people with family in Seattle. So it's an organic platform derived from people that initially were from Seattle, but overwhelming majority yes. are still in Seattle that have buy-in where they yes. see that this issue, I mean, the, the, the title of itself describes it, Safe Seattle. They see that Seattle is not safe, and you and your other administrators on that page document via articles and positions highlighting the public safety issues that are impacting homeless, politics, crime, police, and what have you, right? And corruption, corruption, okay. incompetence, political is, incompetence. Is that why you've received so much pushback? It could be, it could be. It's it's really hard to say because I never get into the kinds of conversations with the people who hate me and hate the page that would really draw that out. Sure. So I can make inferences, and uh, it's it's partly. Because I'm a threat to their power base, I'm a threat to the left's power base here. It's partly for emotional reasons. Yeah. I think on some level the haters really agree with me. They know that they're they're taking the wrong position, um, but they they can't afford to admit that in front of their friends. So they got to make a show of being all tough and hating on Safe Seattle, and it's kind of a running joke on the far left in Seattle of people who've been kicked off the page because they just say such outrageous stuff. They don't follow the guidelines or they call people Nazis for disagreeing with them and then they get kicked off. And it's like they then get bragging rights about how quickly... Being kicked off. So, so, so then they ultimately put it on you as you being the obstructionist to uh, conversation, right? Yeah. But, I mean, on one level they enjoy it. 
on one level, it's yeah. it's entertaining for I them. I can see that. After they get kicked off, they they go on Twitter and then they screenshot stuff that we post that annoys them, and then they analyze it. They analyze it on their own forums because they're not allowed on our forum anymore because they're not going to be civil. But anyway, back to Safe Seattle, if I yeah, if I no may, yeah. um, how it got got off the ground. It was started by a friend of mine named Harley Lever, who ran for mayor in 2017. But uh, I don't think he had the, the time to give it. Uh, so he eventually stepped back, and, and I stepped into the void. void. And it suited me because, whereas with my blog, I was just getting a few hundred readers per article, Facebook has the immediacy and it, it has the reach so that you can just show a picture of your dog. And if, if you know how to use the platform, you can get tens of thousands of people reading that and giving your dog a thumbs up. So I thought, well, if, if I can get that many um, likes for a picture of a dog, how many more can I get for uh, a brief article about something happening at City Hall. And I can even use Facebook to share what I write on my blog. So if I write a longer piece on my blog and it's got some staying power and I want it to to want to keep cycling it through the audience so yeah. everybody reads it, then uh, Facebook is perfect for that. But to, to make a page go on Facebook, you have to keep updating it constantly you have to keep it fresh it's work it's hard work but that's what you need to do to build an audience and so i naturally just got drawn into um covering everything i went well beyond uh homeless issue to all kinds of city politics and then i discovered that people really wanted to share their stories with me and, and that's when Safe Seattle really took off. That's when people really started to feel ownership in it because they thought... It's a platform. They, they saw their material on our page. And uh, especially for those who didn't feel like they could express themselves, I'm an editor by trade, so I could uh, take their writing, polish it a little, rearrange some of their, their sentences, give it a little more oomph, put a picture with it and put it out there and it would, it would um, just blow up. It would like get 10,000, 20,000 reads for somebody telling a story about how somebody jacked their car or, you know, they, they woke up one morning and there was a guy sleeping in their backyard, stuff like that. Um, they would tell us those stories, bring those stories to us. We would, dish it out for the other readers and we found that there was a lot of interest in that in fact that's still it's it's a mixed blessing for me because on the one hand it feels great to put a story out there especially if somebody um it's somebody else's story they, yeah. did, a, they did all the legwork they're the ones who had the guy sleeping in their yard had all the risk um it's great to see that get a wide audience but then I'll, I'll have an, a more analytical piece where I'm talking about why we are seeing so many people sleeping in uh, other people's yards. And people are much less interested in that, unfortunately. They're much less interested in talking about the political aspect of things. 
They just they want to go for the sensational stuff. Yeah, so they're drawn to politics. I think p- politics is um, it's fascinating. They're they're drawn to the sensational aspect. Sensational. It. Yeah. It's almost like clickbait. Juicy stuff. Clickbait, yeah. So I, I got to find a balance between uh, the people who will primarily read the page for that and yeah. the people who will primarily read it for uh, the political analysis. I got you. And then we, tr- we try to keep it positive by telling people there, there's something they can do to change the situation. Yeah, because it's one thing to just, you know, just blurt out the problems. But you've got to give people a call to action. So that's why I love the police rallies, because it was a way to get people out there yeah. on the street and safely. And I found that there were uh, plenty of people willing to show up at those if they felt safe. But unfortunately, because they don't feel safe now, yeah, um, they're, they're just going to stay at home. They're just going to continue to follow politics through their keyboard. And that's really not enough. I wish we could tell people more about the candidates. We, I wish we had candidate, better candidates to get excited about, but unfortunately we don't. Okay. Um, you've been labeled at this, as this alt-right guy. And that's the boxing we kind of, my, my, sure. my words, putting you in a box to isolate you, to remove you from what they deem as the reasonable crowd. Um, is that accurate? No. Why? Well, they don't really define what alt-right means. But when I think of alt-right, I think of somebody who is um, attending secret meetings with their their little group of compatriots, and they're plotting to, to take over the government somehow. They're going to use violence. Mm. Or I think of somebody who's got some crackpot theory about... Um, all of the secret actors that are um, manipulating our political system, and I have nothing to do, nothing to do with that. Everything I do, I do openly. If I do something um, secretly or anonymously, it's just to protect somebody else. So we do post a lot of anonymous stories on safe Seattle. Just to protect their identities, because now more than ever, right? Yep. So would you consider yourself a moderate? I, I would consider myself a moderate. In terms of being in Seattle your whole life, mm-hmm. um, the work you've done, you said you're an editor by trade. Mm-hmm. You're a good writer. You, you know how to edit. You can put some words together, and you work your ass off. I mean, you, you're constantly writing. Um. And if you look at the way that I run Safe Seattle with my other admins, yeah. we make it a respectful forum. So that's what's moderate about it, is that you can't bash on other readers. Um, you have to be, you, you can't threaten violence or use a crude or obscene language, even about public figures. We, we, yeah, because then you're unre- Tamp that down. then you're unreasonable. It's nonsense. You don't you yeah. never issue violence. Never wish violence on anybody, yeah. right? Um, and it just builds on itself. The hate builds on itself. So we yeah. don't we don't allow that on Safe Seattle. But if you if you look at some of the um, far left new, uh, 
forums. Can you name one? Like, like what are they? Um, are you comfortable naming them? If not, we can move. That's fine. I would say, you know, t- Twitter in Seattle okay. is dominated by far-left voices. It seems to be impacting public safety conversations in terms of decisions. I would agree to that. On Facebook, there are a handful of um, what I call a fake district pages. So there's a, a District 3 page that's devoted to um, Shamasa Wants District. Mm-hmm. And the people who uh, run that page are political operatives. They are aligned politically with Sawant and the far left. And until recently, till very recently, if you went on that forum, the District 3 forum on Safe Seattle, or not Safe Seattle, but Facebook rather, and you um, voice some criticism of Sawant or her policies, mm. you would get bashed and then you would get banned. Bashed and banned. So that's an example so of So what they complain about Safe Seattle when you basically shun people because number one, they're using v- verbiage that is hostile inaccurate yeah. lying well then obviously that's not reasonable conversation yeah. you're off the page yep but you welcome discourse feedback that's reasonable in disagreement yes. platform right we welcome principled criticism because it's that's a good it's way to put it makes for a more interesting read yeah i know i like that it's uh it, that's a reasonable uh, position to have and I guess if you were just banning people because, number one, they came to your page and they just disagreed with your perception, well, then I guess you could be playing into that alt-right conversation as they're trying to box you into. But that's not what you do, what you're telling me. It's like you have a moderate Seattle approach to your political views and how public safety issues is connected to the political conversations. Yes. So what other, besides Safe Seattle... And your your website, homelessindustrialcomplex.com. What other platforms do you, I guess, play with to get a message out there? That's um, it. Those are those are the those are the only two. two. Yep. Do you do any national publications? Have you have you have you had conversations to try to get try to get more uh, maybe with connect with like Portland in terms of Antifa and what's going on here and how that is impact impacting the public safety political discourse in this area? I've had some behind-the-scenes discussions about hooking up with activists in Portland, moderate political activists, um, but they it never went anywhere. And I am stretched to the max now, so oh, yeah. I can't, it's almost I can't like you take need a staff. anything else. Okay. Well, I got you. Well, you I mean, you're effective, and if they weren't, meaning the activists, the unreasonable, I, I was getting made fun of the other day, but it, I think, People were, were liking it, but I always go to the unreasonable activism. That's my tag. Um, but if you're not being accosted verbally, either in person or in written form, keyboard tough guys is what I call them, um, then you're not effective. Then you're not considered a threat. Then you wouldn't be fulfilling your civic duty as a Seattle resident. Say, like, hey, there's a problem over here, and I'm going to tell you what it is. Yeah, that's the unreasonable you, activism. You from have those to people. you have to remind yourself of that occasionally. 
so you don't you don't let them get to you and i expect you've had this experience before where oh, yeah. you know you just get so much hate directed at you and it's it's not that you internalize it and start to believe what people are saying about you but you just become fatigued with it it's it's deflating right i mean you, i mean i think mentally you have to back off a bit because you have to protect yourself it's like you can, you can only have so much armor that can protect you from the onslaught of just unreasonable activism. Like people that are just so willing to lie and besmirch and malign your character when all you, you're doing is what you believe is right in your core being, your soul. And each, yeah. and each the more you push, the more you believe in it, the more your soul can be harmed. Right? Yeah. That's the kind of way I look at it. And what your enemies do is they use your friends against you. They leverage your friends against you. So I never read what the critics say about me. First place, I don't have time. Second place, I don't really respect what they have to say. Because right? they're just loud and just throwing shit. Yeah. They're not, they're not going to learn anything. They're not going to listen if I respond to their criticisms. And usually they're the way they frame their criticisms of me is just so low that it just turns me right off. But what happens is that my friends will un unknowingly carry their water for them. They're, my friends will screenshot some mean tweet about me and show it to me and say, look what they're saying about you. And I think that um, my friends kind of get a rise out of that because they, they're waiting for me to to react to that and they and then they feel like they caused that and they, it gives them a, a little boost and so i i try to disable that at the beginning by saying okay well i expect you to go on there and defend me unless you agree with what they're saying about me and if you agree with that you you really shouldn't be talking to me about it um and so I, I impose a, a cost on them for, for yeah, well, bringing I, that nastiness to my doorstep. Well, I guess then are they really friends? Right? I mean, it's They're, like if, if you really care about David Preston's well-being, do you want to just provide more negativity? Uh, to me, that's just the, like, hey, man, you, you're looking for people outside of that negativity because ultimately what's real in life is happiness, truth, and just enjoying life. Well, that's what family, I tell them. Family and friends that are interested in your positivity, you're moving forward in life versus staying in a negative subsect of what I believe is fake culture here in terms of the people that are just willing to just spout hatred and vitriol. To me, those are soulless individuals that aren't interested in driving the public discourse in a positive societal light for better betterness i mean well have you had this experience yourself where friends will bring you um screenshots of these yeah. awful things yeah I, I you know i i have i have and i kind of have the same level of reaction that you do but i think for me it's 
I've been a cop for 21 years, going on 22. You're used to the hostility in uniform. But what you do is like you go back to the precinct. When your shift's done, you take the Superman suit off, and then you're gone. But when you immerse yourself in the politics intentionally because you want to see change, well, then it's not a shift. It's 24 hours a day. And you can't. And you got no Superman suit. Yeah, you got no Superman suit. <laughs> you can pull that closer to you if you need to. Um, you have no su- well, Superman suit. I mean, I'm sure we're going to be, I'll be made fun of that, but it's like, I believe cops are great people, but we're humans. Um, so it is a form of what I believe is a, you're, you're becoming that figure professionally, right? So your soul, the reason why you do the job, you put this suit on, you have this equipment that allow you to fulfill your oath of service to protect people and to help. So that's why I see Superman. <laughs> so let's compare and contrast our experiences a little bit here because I think that's interesting. First, tell me about how it feels when you're getting criticism as a civilian, hmm. political criticism, versus when you were standing there as as a cop in the front line. Great, great, great question. Cop on the front line, and you knew that you could just experience it for the remainder of time that you were in that outfit, that uniform. And you have the ability to take that uniform off, and that uniform carries that criticism. Not you personally. And I think that sometimes where we misstep as coppers is we allow that personal criticism to be taken personally like you will you let it bother you so then therefore you might act out in a manner that gets you into hot water in terms of being that professional cop that you're striving to be therefore you'll be pulled into the accountability process and then you might go a step too far you might do use of force that's outside policy right that's the level that's the that's the worst level you could get to and, and you could see the black blockers trying to manipulate that, oh, right? totally. They're trying to get to you. And you know what? During these riots, I mean, they were, they were successful with some of us, for sure. I mean, there's only so much as a human being you can take, right? Especially if you're there for 15, 18, 20 hours sometimes, just getting hammered. And it's, it takes a special person to be able to just have the Teflon on where you, that doesn't get to you. But over time, it does, because we're just human. But getting to your second point, as just a person without the uniform on, but you still, for me personally, when you still represent police, I chose to take this role on, and I knew that stepping into this position, given the amount of representation I wanted to give to the great cops that I represent, I knew that would come with a cost, a significant cost, to me personally. I chose that. I'm no longer in uniform. And I'm basically in a civilian role, if you will, but I'm still a sworn police officer. I still have police powers. But I'm immersed in the attacks day in and day out, much like you are. And so for me, I'll steal a line from my favorite movie of all time, Heat. See, for me, the action is the juice. I take that 
to embolden my drive to protect cops. Because I see the people that are spewing that hate, that soulless hate, are on the wrong side. And I believe wholeheartedly in my conviction that I'm like, keep hammering down. That's why I like the Twitter platform, but I'm still held to the professional standards of the department and policy and procedures in terms of social media where I can't cross that line. Right. Um, That's a big advantage I have over you. Exactly. And, um, but I wade in those hatred waters. But over time, in the year that I've been here, and I continue to push the envelope, and maybe a long answer to your question, I apologize for hogging the air here, but sometimes it does get to you where you just need to take a break. And you need to pick and choose your battles. So that's one thing I've learned in the course of this year is not getting immersed in every fight. You have to be tactical in where you need to push back in order to be effective. Because I've already been put into a box much like yourself. I'm not saying I'm a victim. I actually enjoy the exposure. I, I enjoy the action. Because to me, it means I'm over the target, if you will that they see me as a threat, much like you. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking the truth and fact. And that's what police officers deal with, is truth and fact. Just the facts, ma'am. Right? they old school. But we have to have the ability to then have an empathetic tone in Seattle to understand the community's concerns about policing, the history of policing, appease that issue, but also stand up for ourselves. Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by StopDefunding.com. The senseless trend of defunding police departments must be stopped. Over 200,000 reasonable citizens have already signed our petition, and we need your help. Visit StopDefunding.com and add your signature to help us protect public safety. Now more than ever, our voices must be heard. Speak up at StopDefunding.com. So I think you're, you're doing a good job as SPOG president of trying to be empathetic. Yeah. But right now, you and the force are in survival mode. Oh, yeah. So a lot of the, the mental energy that would normally go into being more empathetic, being more community-oriented, reaching out, listening to people, mm-hmm. that's being spent on just surviving, just staying afloat. And that's that's where I think um, the, the Antifa's game is, is centered on. It's like keeping you so busy, mm-hmm. uh, just watching your backs, just handling them that you can't succeed at um, the mission of being more community oriented that you've, you've already embraced. You've agreed to take that on. So they're trying to set you up for failure. And if if you look at the um, online chatter on the far left here in Seattle, they will, they will just lay it right out there. They'll say, we want to create disturbances 
we want to, to call in fake emergencies so we can have the cops running everywhere, chasing their tails, and they won't have time to do anything else. They won't have time to do their real job, their proper job, and they won't, ha- they won't be able to demonstrate to the public what it is they do and why it's so valuable. Sure. And, you know, why, why I did this, took on this job, is, you know, I stepped away from a great, great, great group of people, SWAT guys, to do this. I ran, got elected, thank you, membership. Because um, I firmly believe that there's only one entity now that can push back against this nonsense. And that's police unions. Typically, we have focused on hours, wages, and working conditions. Totally agree. That's the labor side of us. We are a labor organization. However, with that comes a responsibility to stand up for the working conditions more so than not just the contract, but in the public discourse, particularly here in Seattle. And you can see it across the nation where the only real entities that can just say, stop, and really articulate the pushback are police unions. We can wade in those waters. The departments can't. Sure, you have public affairs, but they have to toe the line. They can't get immersed in politics. They represent the government entity. They're tied to city hall. They have serious constraints. And they can push out the facts, but they can't really take a position on things. They, and they are management, after all. They're in management. Yeah, management rights. It's in the contract, too. So at that same time that the f- work is devolving on police unions to stand up for their membership mm-hmm. and to, to fight back against this political and psychological onslaught, yeah. you are being made the, the villains. You're being targeted and blamed for all the problems. On a you, false you, narrative. You've got people, union people, for the f- first time, saying, yeah, unions are good for everybody except, except cops. Well, not all of them. 50%, almost 50% of the people that were involved in the King County Labor Council were in support of us, of 47%. There are still people in labor that believe in police as being labor, protecting labor rights. Anybody else outside the scope of that that want to remove police from the conversation, to me, aren't really interested in true labor. They're more interested in politics. And that does such a disservice to the labor workers, coppers, firefighters, iron workers, carpenters, you name it. To me, that's unconscionable. What happened to an injury to one is an injury to all. Yeah, they were more than willing to take our money, our dues. But when it became politically problematic for them, well, then they just cast us aside. Which leads me to believe that, that's why I go to this talking point all the time, with just politics in general. Just days before George Floyd, and I say this all the time, and I will say it until I'm done with this role. Just days before George Floyd, we had our mayor, we had our president of our city council, connect with media to tout this agency. And I don't speak for the agency. 
they speak for the union, to tout the Seattle police officers as being the model agency of reform. Who's the purveyor of constitutional policing, the entity that makes sure that you're adhering to Bill of Rights, Fourth Amendment, not engaging in racist, biased policing? Who is that? That's the Department of Justice. They said we were that entity just days before Floyd. We did all the work, 10 years worth of work, at record pace. And unfortunately, George Floyd happens in Minnesota, across the country. And our politicians ran away. What happened to be the model reform agency? And to me, I equate that to the administrative betrayal by our leaders. And it's stunning to me that humans can look themselves in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm just going to back off here. And go away from your word. And I I can't in good conscience ever get to that position. And even in this position. And do that. That's the administrative betrayal. That is why good human beings that do the job of policing in this city are fleeing. And that does such a disservice to people like yourself who live in this community for years. Who have buy-in that want to see a change in public safety. But we have leadership that are willing to castigate quality people for political gain. And I still can't wrap my head around that. What is the end game then? Who's going to be left to pick up the pieces when that visits people's doorsteps? <laughs> right? Well, that's the subject of another very long conversation. Yeah, but we could get into that. Sorry, man. I got on my soapbox there because I'm passionate about it. Can we talk a little bit more about war conditions? Because you yeah. brought that term up. And I think what's going wrong is that a lot of people don't make the connection between cops and working conditions. Yeah. Um, I think cops are cops. It's not... I've even seen signs um, when CHOP was active... There were placards that said, cops aren't workers. Then what so are we? what? Yeah, what do you say? <laughs> what are we? Give me an example of working conditions that you think that SPOG needs to focus on now. Staffing. Staffing, okay. That's... Overtime. I wouldn't... I'm not... Sure, I would love to get more money from my people, right? That's every labor union's job is to just get more money. Hours, wages, and working conditions. Okay. Let's negotiate. You need to do this, this, this. All right. All right. We'd like to get a little bit more money. Okay. But because no human works for free unless you have loads of money and your resources, then you're just a philanthropist. Right? Who wouldn't want that? Right? I would say it would be staffing. That's the biggest safety concern for us is because you're not going to get a, a, a effective backup, if you will, when you have to go that go to that priority one call. You won't have enough cops to get your back. And that's that's the biggest thing. We got we got police officers fleeing the city because of lack of political support and the administrative betrayal. So for me it's it's staffing. But the council is not taking any responsibility for that. Not. They're acting as if it's 
uh, beyond their control, that they don't understand it either. They say, well, we're, we've been offering hiring bonuses. We've got billboards in other cities. It's not our fault if cops leave. Billboards in other cities. So this is the same council that advocated defunding us by 50%, which could be an incredible dangerous impact to the great citizens of this city. And that's the same council that advocated to laying off police officers based on the color of their skin. I don't see a welcome mat to recruit and retain human beings to do the difficult job of policing. So it's on them. Well, tell me, um, because this is something that I assume you have at your fingertips. Um, Does SPD represent a cross-section of the city's population in terms of ethnicity? Yes. A third of our membership are persons of color. They're all over, over a third. We represent Native Americans, African Americans, Asians, Hispanic, uh, Native, uh, any other uh, group involved in the BIPOC arena of discussion. Okay. Uh, we have transgender officers, LGBTQ members, full spectrum. Um, so, and we and we represent Seattle's values. I mean, we we got people that are that are left of left of center thinking we have people that are center thinking we have people right of center thinking i represent everybody i cannot take a position on politics to say hey i'm left wing or hey i'm right wing i mean i've always been moderate if not moderate right i'm comfortable saying that because i don't know any other police officer that has time on that has really worked the street and been a really strong advocate to go after uh, criminals that isn't more of center thinking, right? It's because you see how public safety is impacted by lack of prosecution, victims not being really uh, held to account where they should be. So then you become a little bit, you know, hey, we need to be a little bit focused on the public safety aspects here. So you're kind of moderate to right, right? But I would be fair to say I'm moderate. Well, cops are, by definition, law and order people. That's right. right? And that's typically associated with the right wing of the political spectrum. But you're saying that, uh, except for that, you're a, a real slice of Seattle. Absolutely. So how do you explain this push to um, get white officers to leave and to get more BIPOC officers on? Well, I don't want to speak for them, but every the message that we're hearing is that they believe that, that there's this institutional racism that impacts persons of color disproportionately by police. And I think we're still atoning to our actions in the historical context of just policing in general. So they think that since police targeted, using their words, not mine, since police targeted persons of color decades ago, and they still think that it happens to today, um, therefore they bring more officers that reflect persons of color to to swear to an oath of service, then they will eradicate any racial issues that might impact people of uh, that aren't persons of color. Okay. That, that's the way I equate it to. I would agree with that. I would support that if there was any evidence to back it up. Do you know if there is evidence to back that the up? The data does not show that. Okay. And we're talking about just Seattle here, not some other city. It's not just localized here in Seattle. I mean, this is a national 
movement to cancel police because it's a false narrative that police specifically target African Americans to hunt them down and kill them with deadly force. That is the numbers that are collected by the FBI that are provided from police agencies across the nation don't reflect that data at all. In fact, it's the opposite. Isn't it harder for you to, to go against a national narrative? 100%. Okay. Because, I mean, it's, 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 it's all the way to the, to the top of governmental powers here in, in our nation. I mean, that, that's, that's the talking point. So but, but, but for me, that's why I go back to, that's why I go back to this talking point every time. That if that's really the belief of policing by our elected officials here and activists, then why was it those uh, politicians just days before Floyd said we were the modeled reform agency? Why did they feel that they needed to say that? Wouldn't they continue the talking point to say that we need more reform because there's racism in this police department? That's why I just think this is such a false narrative and it's built on such a false platform that is so dangerous to a functioning society and so dangerous to the quality human beings that do this job of policing. Now, we're not, I'm not, we're not ill of mistakes, but we're humans. And so the way they come back to my talking point is all police unions do is stick up for bad cops. That's not accurate. That's another false narrative. Now, do we have some culpability there in terms of the perception we don't own our mistakes and then we should be more accountable? It's cops that hold each other accountable because we do not want another cop acting egregiously in the scope of their duties because it's a reflection on all of us. Look at the officer in Minnesota. They're using that as the example to define policing across the board that the whole system is racist that needs to be built up from the ground. That is such a disgusting platform to have and such a slap in the face to every person I represent, especially the membership that are persons of color. Now, do our, do, do, are there some people in my membership that believe that there's structural racism? Sure, Absolutely. And they have a platform. And I represent them all. Mm -hmm. But I will 100% push back on the hypocrisy of our politicians who go to blaming the police. All they had to do, David, is if they're truly proud of this department and the men and women that swear the oath of service to protect this city, they could have led the nation post-George Floyd to say, you know what? The Seattle Police Department is that model of reformed agency. Stick with their word just days before Floyd. And use us as a Seattle model of how an agency should conduct themselves post-Floyd. Now, do we have lessons learned that we need to really look at as far as our handling of the riots? Okay, let's have that discussion. But that was unprecedented. I mean, who would have thought that we would be besieged like that? It's, it's, a, it's a hard case to make because when you've got your bystanders filming 
a crowd from the perspective of the crowd yeah you're going to see this wave of cops line of cops clouds of tear gas and then it's a bad image people are coughing um screaming there might be kids on the scene there so well you know i would question people that bring kids to a straight out riot i mean where's your ownership of being unreasonable yeah i question that too but um an event can go from demonstration to to, to riot in seconds agreed so usually what we saw with the confrontations for the battle of the east precinct that it would devolve when it got dark right that's when the bad actors as i called them um would take over the demonstration the peaceful demonstration and make it a criminal act that's where we received the most of uh the injuries we're talking hundreds of injuries many of them career-ending um and I went to, you know, when I did media interviews during that time, it's like the East Precinct surveillance systems, the camera systems captured all of that. And I was like, well, why isn't the city using this footage to show the most reformed agency, according to them, was being met with rocks, bottles, improvised explosive devices, but yet our city council was saying that we were the cause of those demonstrations, meaning we started the assaults. So to me, that's the administrative betrayal. And it's built on such a false narrative. I don't know how we recover here to bring quality human beings to the city to do the job of policing without some serious self-reflection on our politicians' part. I don't think that's an unreasonable position to have. What's your theory as to why they didn't release the footage? Because it goes against the narrative that they're trying to push that the system is is broken and that policing needs to be uh, rebuilt and they needed to uh, they couldn't withstand the political pressure and I think it was more based upon number one the national election as well but also the outrage uh, more moreover the outrage of for George Floyd the justice there. And I think it's, 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 it's this perfect storm of several years in the making of targeting police as being this racist culture. And they would use videos that they would cherry pick in the media to push that false narrative more and more and gain the traction. And if people don't become critical thinkers and they just do clickbait, what we kind of talked about, clickbait headlines where they're being told what to think, and they don't really delve into the real essence of the problem, well, then they're just going to be believe that there's a major problem. Now look what's happening. People believe it, and cops are going to get killed. Community members are going to get killed. The existence of the consent decree and a handful of high-profile cases of alleged police brutality, unnecessary use of force, whatever you want to call it, yeah. Denied to um, Seattle cops the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. So you take that and you combine that with what's going on nationwide. Mm-hmm. You've got tr- a Trump presidency and you've got um, incidents that happen in other cities that people in Seattle read about and they feel like that's happening in their city. Yeah. They identify with the victim, with the situation, 
And my concern um, for, for Spog in fighting these, these false narratives is that the more you wade into the national discussion, even if you're in the right, even if you look at uh, statistics nationally and they show that uh, use of force has gone, gone down or whatever, mm-hmm. it's, it's fighting a, a much larger battle where there's a much wider array of forces against you. So you don't think we should weigh into the national politics, political uh, scene? I don't think so. And from from the, the minute uh, Jenny Durkin started talking about Donald Trump, I thought, uh, here she goes. She's got nothing for Seattle. Mm-hmm. She's pivot, not going to succeed in, in her program here. But what she can do is continue to vilify President Trump. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess... She's taking advantage of it. Oh, I mean, I she's it. using it. It's deflection. To her benefit. It's yeah. deflection. I, the only time we weigh into national politics is when it surrounds policing. I still say what happens in, in Minneapolis, Chicago, New York, Seattle cops don't have any influence over that. That's and so right. you shouldn't. That's you shouldn't. right. That, that's where I disagree with you. Okay, so how does a cop in Seattle? make a, a difference in policing in Minneapolis. Sure, because we unite with other police unions across the nation to protect our profession. Because ultimately, just what we were dealt with, which hurt cops, which ended careers, which are making cops flee this city, is because of an event that occurred in Minneapolis. And the fervor behind what you focused on. Our politicians wading into the national politics, which creates more of a fervor. But we've never aligned with the right in terms of politics. We've stayed out of the political talk where we engage in the national talk is public safety issues, particularly with policing. And if we can't get unified from Seattle to New York, when we're watching the complete utter breakdown of our profession, you better believe we need to get involved. Absolutely. Who else will? I think you don't control that field, though. Why not? Because you're in the... If, if, if we became united, we would be the one of the biggest groups that can counter this false narrative. We are up against national media. We're up against big activist money. And it's almost futile. But if we don't do it, who will? Nobody else is. And that's part of the service, to protect this profession that we dearly love. Okay, so what are other police unions around the country doing to help Spock? Yeah, for instance, good question. Um, we belong to United Coalition of Public Safety, which is a conglomerate of mostly West Coast police unions to get a positive message, message out there to the public. But also, we've aligned ourselves with the East Coast uh, unions so we can develop podcasts to get a message out there to counter a media narrative that doesn't tell the whole story properly, to counter the false narrative about the hyper-focus on every single, what they deem to be controversial shootings, because we're not seeing our department step up and do that. It has to come from police unions. So suppose That's the reason why I ran for this position, specifically. My campaign platform is drive the narrative because nobody else is. Oh, I, I support that, driving it for Seattle. But I don't think you 
have influence over the narrative in other places. I disagree. Okay. Well, time time will tell. I because suppose. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, what do we need to uh, to acquire it in order to have a platform to fight for uh, policing, not just locally but nationally? What does it take? It takes partnership and it takes resources. Because if we don't align ourselves with the East Coast or middle of the country, well, then we're going to be broken. And ultimately, we're a reflection of our communities. And if our communities are broken, then we're not going to be much left. Tell me the practical effect that's going to have for Seattle. Suppose you have um, um, a brother police union, fraternal organization and in another city they air this podcast or they take other steps to improve the image in their city of seattle police Mm -hmm. what difference is that going to make on the ground for you guys recruiting i came across this nation to do this job in seattle because i wanted to live in this city so you think that could help reverse the the exodus I think it would reverse the philanthropy that you're trying to, that you, based upon your philanthropy, in terms of the homeless industrial complex. It's the same advocacy, right? So if, if we don't stand up for, for, for truth and facts in Seattle and properly educate, inform, I hate the word educate, inform not only our community of the public safety issues that are impacting us, with truth and fact, in particular police deadly force, use of force data, and then not engage the national scene to inform them of what Seattle is experiencing, well, then I think we're doing a detriment to our society, not just in Seattle, but across the nation. Seattle is viewed, I believe, as the emerald city it once was. And if we don't fight for her, not just locally, but on a national level, who in their right minds would want to come to Seattle? Look at the documentary, Seattle is Dying. Look at what that did. I would like to take part in that to try to save this place, much like what you're doing. And for me, we have to get involved in the national scene in order to spotlight what's really occurring here to save this place from itself. I don't know if that's a good answer for you, You've challenged me well, um, it's, it's but I believe ongoing point of contention between us. Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's that's why you're here. We get plenty of support from folks living around the country on Safe Seattle, and uh, but we had a hard lesson uh, during the last election, the one that uh, Ari Hoffman was in. Yeah, District Two. Yeah where we saw a lot of uh, enthusiasm for his candidacy on our page. And judging from that, you would have think that you would have thought that Ari would have um, shut out all the competition. But he didn't even make it past the primary. And we had to take a hard look at that, do some soul-searching over that, and admit that we were really wrong in our assessment of the situation. And as it turned out, one of the reasons why we were so optimistic about Ari was because we were getting all of this 
um, love and support for him from people who don't live here and don't vote here. And interestingly, even a lot of the people in his district who, who work in his district, like uh, I think, uh, is, are we within District 2 right here in this office? Uh, yeah, I believe okay. so. Yeah. So you know from looking around here that there's a lot of um, warehouses and uh, bigger office buildings. The, the people who work there see the effects of bad politics on their district every single day, on the district they work in. But then 5 o'clock, they get in their car, they drive off to another part of Seattle or maybe a suburb. They don't vote here. So even though they bear the brunt of bad politics, they don't have any control over it. And these were some of the same folks who were coming out strongly in support of Ari on our page. So we got the false notion that he had a lot of political support here that mattered. As it turned out, uh, those people didn't—they didn't do anything other than um, support him online, and some of them gave money, which which helped them a lot. But mm-hmm. it doesn't translate to a, a win in an election. Sure. And so, you know, that's what I have to be very leery of when I'm looking at the political trends on my Facebook page, because they can be very deceptive. And I've I've told people that uh, one person who will actually go to a demonstration is more valuable to the cause than 100 who will just voice their support yeah, but that's, and that's otherwise won't do anything. Yeah, that's part of the activism that just they're okay behind their keyboard but won't show up in person. And I think, you know, to use your example, much like the national scene that we're trying to align ourselves with police unions across the nation to get on the same page is for us to be effective you have to build a a power base a resource base where you can influence politics at a national level to impact working conditions here in the city especially when police are the target and they're trying to cancel police as a profession as we know it if we don't get involved in my belief then we are not fulfilling a role of service, not just for our coppers here, but the human beings that do the job of policing across the nation, because if we aren't united, we're divided. And I've said this before, and I wholeheartedly believe this, and I said it might come across as arrogant. It's going to take cops to save this nation. Maybe. Because I see this nation devolving. So what are cops going to do to save the nation? Get united. Use our resources to counter the false narratives that malign and besmirch our characters. And that's not just a local issue, it's a national issue. Because what happened in Columbus with LeBron doxing that officer who saved the life to protect the life, excuse me, took a life to protect the life, could just happen here as you and I are talking. And if we don't have the partnership across the nation to provide support for us, then we're all alone. And our politicians abandoned us when they ruled us out as being the model of reformed agency on something that occurred across the nation. They abandoned us. 
So who do we have left? Ourselves. So changing the narrative narrative is going to uh, change people's behavior. Attitudes and behavior. Okay. 100%. That's my advocacy. That's why I do what I do. Why don't we hear more stories of cops doing good things for people? Doesn't sell papers. Doesn't get doesn't satisfy clickbait. And that's what we're up against. Remember the Fox TV show Cops? Yeah, it was it, a great show. My favorite show. Yeah, so they sold some uh, laundry detergent by telling good stories about cops. What happened? I'm not sure why that ceased to exist. I know there are some cities, I know that they came here to Seattle to try to get, you know, videotape us and ride along with us, but I think that that time was Chief Fitzsimons who said no, it was too much of a liability. I don't know why that occurred. Maybe because it was too much positive PR, and it highlights the crime that impacts our communities across the nation. Maybe that's the start of what we need to do, is just do a course correct here, and it's going to take cops to do that. And this is part of the, my philanthropy that I want to do, that I'm working on, that I've been trying to do with this podcast, is to get a narrative out there of alternative views relative to politics and how it's impacting public safety and that to paint the picture that cops are great people. Could it be viewed as being futile? I'm going to hammer down. <laughs> well, as you I, know, I won't let that stop me. We try to do that on Safe Seattle. We achieve a balance, I think, with people who come on with stories of bad experiences that they've had with cops, and we let them talk, even though I know that there's going to be flack whenever I carry one of those stories. I know there's going to be some of our uh, police readers who say, who are skeptical, who say, "Um, I don't believe that happened based on your, your reader's description of the situation cop would never do that so on and so forth um but we run those stories anyway and sometimes we will even run a story a a critical negative story from an officer if it's somebody that i know and trust we'll carry it um i mean i mean i'd cut you off here but for us to have any kind of credibility we got to be humble and we got to be able to own our, our stuff right um it's the only way we can engage the reasonable communities here because we're so overwhelmed by the false narratives from platforms that aren't interested in having proper, direct, truthful, reasonable conversations. And balanced I why conversations. Balanced, thank you, balanced. It's a good way. So it's interesting that even when I'm talking to an officer about their experience, that officer would rather give me something that was critical, uh, something that they had an opinion on, something that they related to, they would rather give me a sad story, sob story, than to tell me a happy story, even if they have a bag full of happy stories, happy cop stories to tell me. For some reason, they would prefer the other kind. And 
what I like to do is get people more into the habit of telling the good cop stories. Positive stories. And we got to figure out a way to make those sexy, make people want to read them. And not I'm not talking about the the Fox cops show style. I that that uh, had its day. It was like on for at least a decade, like twenty uh, some odd years. It became kind of a, f- a formula, so you knew exactly what to expect. And from city to city, only the that was my favorite show. Place. Really. It was <laughs> okay. incredible, and it was a good show. I I uh, watched uh, many hours of it, but uh, I think we need to try something different now. Where I ideally we would have a show where a cop changed somebody's mind about who cops are and what they do. So, David, what you're describing to me is a national conversation. You're going against your talking point about not agreeing with going to the national scene to have a conversation about cops. Except that I think that it could take place in Seattle. I think there are enough good cop stories right here in Seattle. We have such great people here. I mean, it's like we're losing fantastic talent. We're the best trained in the state. And I'll say that. That's not arrogant. That's true. That's why you've got local agencies putting up billboards here and messaging to Seattle cops. Leave now. We've got you. (laughs) You're the best trained. Come here. You're supported. I mean... So don't you agree with me that we've got enough material, even with... The diminished force that we're left with yeah. now. We've got enough. Like well, let's. Uh, that's. Uh, I really like your idea. Can we take a national? <laughs> Why not? You highlight Seattle's public safety crisis and the good that we're doing, the cops on the ground. Wouldn't that attract people from across the nation to flock to Seattle? improve the recruiting of quality human beings to do the job of policing. This is the ultimate goal. Do you see that happening with Not right the now. current political situation? No, that's why you have to get involved in the national political discourse to change it. Otherwise, your voice will be silenced. You won't have a platform. You have to immerse yourself outside the lens of Seattle. You have to align with Portland. You have to align with San Francisco. You have to align with Sacramento. You have to align with New York City. It's, a, it's critical. Or else you're just going to get swallowed by the power base here. No one's ever going to accuse you of not thinking big enough. <laughs> well, you know what? I like to push. And uh, I love cops so much. I want to protect cops and ultimately protect our sit of reasonable citizens and you know but also protect people that don't agree with us the unreasonable that's our job and I'll take a bullet for any of those people especially the antifa ones that want to kill me I'll take a bullet for you man because that's the kind of human being that I am how's your day-to-day job different from that of your predecessor Well, it's probably more of a question for 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 the former um, president. Um, well, you had a good look at what he did. You were vice president under him. Yeah. It, it seems like you're about as different as you could be. 
Yeah. Uh, my job is, well, the fact that you and I are sitting here under the lights and cameras, that's a big difference because I'm so forward with trying to connect with our, our local populace, but also take this platform national. That's a big difference. I'm extremely busy. I, I work my tail off. I'm not trying to build myself up, but I really do work my tail off. I make it a point to connect with every member that tries to connect with me directly. I try to answer every email, return every phone call, return every text. Ironically enough, my busiest days are Sundays. It's the strangest thing. Um, I almost can't turn it off. And I love the job so much. Like I said earlier, the action is the juice. Okay. But I, but I have to balance that with family life too, right? I can't let it swallow me. Right. And so there are some times where I just kind of pull back and eject. I had a bad day last week. Um, you know, I won't get into the, the, the issues, but it was just like one of those days where it's like I needed to reject. But um, I like our conversation here. We got to shut it down. I've got an hour and a half, and I got to, I got to stuff. I got to go. But you know what? You brought some stickers, and man, I like how you, you're, you're a critical thinker. You're an intellectual. You challenge me. Um, and you're passionate about Seattle. Um, you know, you've got you, you go around and you have this. There it is, right there. It's. Uh, big red sign over Antifa. And the quote is, lawlessness is lawlessness. Anarchy is anarchy. Neither race nor color nor frustration is an excuse for either lawlessness or anarchy. Who said that? Thurgood Marshall. It's right here on this sticker. We'll get in. We're going to have you on again and really get into some of the stuff you're doing behind the scenes to try to save Seattle. No pun intended. Save Seattle. Thanks for having me on. You bet, man. And thanks for uh, thanks for the honest conversation. And uh, website again for you. What is it again? Homelessindustrialcomplex.com, and the Safe Seattle Facebook page is at safeseattle.com. Thanks for what you're doing for the citizens of this city and uh, for being a good human. It's my honor. Thanks, David. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.